Good evening, and welcome to FM 98.5 CKWR's presentation, Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Servant of God, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 40 years, Bishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of inspiration and encouragement. I'm your host, Al Smith. And I would ask you to join me as the bishop uh, takes his pastoral guide to finding peace, hope, and contentment in this life and eternal happiness to come. The bishop will also hopefully give us some healing and some goodness this evening, help us to strengthen our resolution of will. This evening, I have asked the bishop to speak on the topic of suffering. Uh, many of our listeners, of course, suffer. And so we'll listen to his reflections on that topic of suffering. And then also in the spirit of Lent, uh, we'll continue his Lenten series. Uh, but one of them is quite interesting. The topic of the, um, the discussion is, did Christ think of atheists? So did Christ think of atheists? And also a small reflection on love. So let us uh, enjoy the bishop as he teaches us, makes us laugh, and of course, uh, guides us in the way of peace. Friends, you may recall a few years ago there was a story going around to this effect about a little girl who was told by her parents to pray because there had been so many misfortunes and sufferings in the family. And so the little child prayed and said, Dear Lord, my brother has the mumps my sister fell off a bicycle and broke her leg, and my older brother has pneumonia, and daddy lost his job. So, dear God, please take care of yourself, because if anything happens to you, we'll all be in the soup. <laughs> we have received so many letters from people who have had greater sufferings than this little girl. We decided tonight to talk on the subject of suffering. First, on some of the paradoxes of suffering. Secondly, on two ways of meeting pain or suffering. And uh, finally, how to accept it. First of all, the paradoxes. Have you noticed that in our contemporary civilization, there happens to be a coincidence? First of all, of great material prosperity and at the same time, a tremendous amount of inner and mental discontent. First of all, we do have material prosperity. The per capita income of the United States is around $1,750. China's $26 a year. But along with that, there's an inner unhappiness. 51% of the hospital beds of the United States are occupied by mental patients. We ought not to have this tragic sense of life with so much prosperity. Why is it? Certainly it's not because we're prosperous. It can only be because, to a great extent, we are assuming that all we need to be happy is some external prosperity. In other words, we've made our philosophy a philosophy of having rather than a philosophy of being. And the reason there is this inner discontent and unhappiness is because man is trying to put the infinite into the finite. This is the mathematical symbol of the infinite. This is the symbol of the finite. And what we're trying to do with our soul and our heart that was made for the infinite of life and truth and love, we are attempting to pull this infinite down into our finite structure with all of its material environment. It simply cannot be done. Rather, what we should do to be happy in the midst of prosperity is to take this finite nature of ours and plunge it into the infinite. As Hans Werfel said, this line of the human and the finite and reason must be crossed somehow or other. And Werfel, continuing, says, it is crossed above by faith, and it is crossed below by insanity. That is the 
is the first peculiar paradox of modern suffering. Now, there's a, a second. And the second has to do with pleasure. Have you ever noticed that we have a greater capacity for pain than we have for pleasure? For example, we, uh, our pleasures are not always very enduring. For one thing, a pleasure can reach a point where it will give us pain. It can turn into pain. For example, tickling. And then also, have you noticed, too, that pleasure sometimes will go up like this, and then there will be a sudden drop in them. And finally, in order to get identically the same reaction, one must very much increase the stimulus. So we're not getting here, out of this life, all of the pleasure and happiness that we possibly can. But pain... Pain, it seems, could very quickly reach an end, and yet somehow it reaches that end that we anticipated, and we still bear it. We go to a dentist, and we feel that if he drills five minutes more and goes six feet deeper, I just can't stand it. <laughs> we stand it all right. And then he continues to pour, and we know he's going to hit oil. We stand it. <laughs> many people listening to me in sick beds of suffering who felt that they should have exhausted themselves months or years ago, but they still can go on suffering. Now, why is this? Why do we have a greater capacity for pain than for pleasure? I think because it was intended by God that all pain here should end. That's why we seem to exhaust it. Because there will come another world when tears will be wiped away. And the sorrows of this life are not worthy to be compared with the joys that are to come. But with pleasure. Pleasure and joy, particularly, is not intended to be exhausted here. That comes elsewhere. That happiness is being saved for heaven. And if people understood that, perhaps there would be... Well less mentally disturbed, less inclined to go to the psychiatrist because they've all got skeletons in their closet and they make no bones about it. <laughs> that brings us to the double reaction to pain. There are two possible ways of enduring pain. As Stevenson expressed two ways of looking out of prison bars. Two men looked out through prison bars. The one saw mud, the other stars. And in the midst of agony and pain and suffering, one reaction of pain can be rebellion. The other reaction of pain can be resignation. Why this difference? The difference is due to the fact that this person sees no purpose in pain. And when there's no purpose seen, no final destiny, when pain is just as opaque as a curtain, then it's rather natural for the soul to revolt against it. When one can see a purpose in it, see it as a means, see it transparent, and is opening on to something else, then there can be resignation. These two attitudes toward pain were perfectly exemplified on the day when two thieves and revolutionists were put to death. They were crucified on either side of our divine Lord. Both of these revolutionists suffered exactly the same torture. They had identically the same background. 
when they each felt the impress of the nail in their hands, when the crucifixion began, they blasphemed. And then when finally they had mounted their crosses, they heard the one on the central cross speak. It was a peculiar word he spoke. Generally when men die, they either protest their innocence, or if they have any spark of justice in their souls, they ask for forgiveness. But here, for the first time in the history of the world, the Son of God on the central cross was saying, Father, forgive They know not what they do. When the thief on the left heard this cry, he suspected that there on that central cross was power. And so he asked the one on the central cross if he had power to take him down. That to him was the sign of omnipotence to stop that pain and that suffering. Why should he be there? Why did he ask to be taken down? Not to be made better, but simply to go on with the dirty business of thieving. But the other thief, He heard that prayer from the central cross. He immediately began to see a relationship between his suffering and his guilt. His background is a blackguard, a revolutionist, and a racketeer. And some sparks from the central cross, ignited some inflammable material in his soul. And in the belfry of his conscience, the bell began to toll. He spoke to the brother thief, and he said, Fear ye not, fear ye not, Suffer the just reward of our crimes. This man has done no wrong. Then he uttered a prayer. And turning to the divine Savior on the central cross, he said, Remember me. Remember me when thou shalt come into thy kingdom. Kingdom? This one who apparently was a fellow criminal, the thief looked at the crown of thorns and saw there a royal diadem. The nail was to him a scepter of power and authority. His crucifixion was his installation. His blood was as royal purple. And he asked only to be remembered. And there came back. This day. Thou shalt be with me. In paradise. was the foundation of democracy, the worth of a single soul. Thou shalt be with me. I always wonder why he said in paradise. To be with him is paradise. And the thief died a thief. For he stole paradise. 
paradise can be stolen again. And from these two reactions, we see the one that is to be chosen. The two ways in which pain can be used. Pain can be used, first of all, in expiation. That is to say, for our own failings and sins. Secondly, in reparation for the failings and the sins of others. First of all, expiation. I can remember uh, when I was a boy about eight or nine years of age, my brother and I were playing a ball in the backyard, and we threw a ball accidentally through the neighbor's window. And mother heard it, and she called us in. And uh, she sent us to our piggy bank. And she made us take the money out and go over to the man next door and give him the money for the broken window. And also ask him to forgive us. Now, why shouldn't we just ask to be forgiven? Well, because we broke a window. People think that when they do anything wrong, all they have to do is be forgiven. Oh, no. We disturb an equilibrium, an order. That order often has to be redressed. For example, if I stole your watch, if I stole the watch of one of these operators here, if I could get close enough to this cameraman and steal his watch here, uh, and then I would say to him, I'm awfully sorry, I stole your watch, will you forgive me? He says, yes, I forgive you. But he says, give me back my watch. <laughs> well, so it is if we have sins. And who in the name of God hasn't? Well, we can ask the good Lord to take the pains that come to us in expiation and redress and atonement for all the wrong that we have done. We put down our foot, for example, three times in illegitimate sinful pleasure and to get back there to do right again. We've got to put our foot down in pain and be like little doggies with our tail in back of us. And then when we reach this point, then only can we begin to do good. That's one way pain can be used. And the second way in which it can be used is in reparation. And here we offer it up for others, not just for ourselves. How often, for example, in the physical order, doctors will graft skin. If we burn our face, from our back to our face, to restore our pristine elegance. If a person is suffering from anemia, doctors will transfuse blood from the healthy member of society to the anemic person in order to cure the person of that condition. Now, if it's possible to transfuse blood, don't you think it's possible to transfuse prayer? If it's possible to graft skin not possible also to graft some reparation, some sacrifice. We live in a world in which we do not grow the sheep, for example, though we wear woolen clothes. Others help us. So it's possible to take our sorrows, our disappointments, and the jealousies and the hatreds of others and turn them all back again as the thief at the right did, in order that someone else might be saved. That's reparation. We should not complain about it. I just happen to think today that maybe you might be interested. In this little booklet that I did, I never intended to be telling you about it. We did it for the mission. The title of it is, What Did I Do to Deserve This? Only about, see, six pages, a tiny little thing. If you want it, we'll send it to you, to you free. Just write to me at 109 East 38th Street, New York 16. The same house where I climbed four flights of stairs for meals this Lent as I did last. <laughs> I figure out... What did I do to deserve that? 
I figure that I climb about 18 to 20 flights of stairs a day, and then have to climb back. My angel got so tired the other day, he stopped after the 14th time. Anybody want to sell me a new house? An office? Let me know, will you? <laughs> Has to be in New York. Now to come back to the point, why should we offer up our sufferings in expiation or reparation? Simply because we love. Love will not kill pain. But love will diminish it. A mother sits up with her sick child all night long. For her, it's not agony. It's love. There are not any lovers in the world, I mean real, true lovers, who would not willingly take on the pains and the agony of others, if they possibly could. Love in, in the face of sorrow does not seek isolation. It wants to take on that pain as its own. And why should not love in the face of sin and evil want to do the same thing? The great tragedy of our world is that most people have no one to love. And since there's no one to love, and they never think of the love of God, their life is tragic indeed. Oh, the tragedy of the world is not so much suffering as what we miss when we do suffer. Think of all of the sick and hospitals with aching brows who might in some way sanctify that pain by correlating it to a crown of thorns. And all the wounded hands that might sacramentalize that agony did they but correlate it in some way with hands that were riven with steel. To all the aching hearts of the world, with all of their worries and anxieties and fears, they would only not allow that pain to go to waste but offer it up in union with someone whose heart was opened taken all the hearts of the world. Why should we fly from that love? I slipped his fingers. I escaped his feet. I ran in heat. For him I feared to meet. One day I passed him. Fettered on a tree. Turned his head and looked and beckoned me. Neither by speed nor strength could he prevail. Each hand and foot was pinioned by a nail. He could not run nor clasp me if he tried. But with his eyes, he bad me. For pity's sake, thought I, I'll set you free. Hey, take this cross, said he, and follow me. This yoke is easy, this burden light, not hard nor grievous. You wear it tight. And so did I follow him who could not move. An uncaught captive in the hands of love. By and God love you. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos 
and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and we're sharing uh, reflections from Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, again, a classic radio broadcasters in the 30s and 40s, and of course, very famous in the 1950s with his television show. Uh, it was funny how he would always outrate Mil- Milton Berle. Uh, in the ratings uh, week to week, uh, 25 million, of course, every Tuesday evening, and of course, won an Emmy uh, for his work. And so, uh, we're proud to reshare these broadcasts with you. We will continue with the bishop's reflections uh, on the many topics he speaks about. And so, now let's uh, join in his conversation on Did Christ Think of Atheists? When our blessed Lord came to this earth, the gospel says of him, he came into his own, and his own received him not. He had to be born under the floor of the earth, in a cave. One has to stoop to enter a cave, and the stoop is the stoop of humility. Now at the end of his life, he is rejected by the earth again. The trees turned against him, the trees that he made, for they gave him a cross. The bowels of the earth turned against him, for they produced a hammer and nails. The roses blushed a deeper red. For from their branches came a crown of thorns. And the earth itself would not have his feet. So they raised him above it. As heaven rejected him, or rather as earth did, so did the heavens. There was darkness over the earth now for three hours. And the sun which he had made as a symbol of himself and his death and resurrection in daily life now hid its light almost as if ashamed to shed itself upon the crime of deicide. Is there anyone else who could reject him? Now that the earth and the heavens had Yes, his heavenly Father. Why should the heavenly Father reject him? I quote reject. Because he would not leave us. Because he identified himself with sinners. And therefore the justice of the heavenly Father saw him as one with the transgressors. And so our blessed Lord at this moment, when nature shares his mood, it's not often that nature shares our moods. We are sad and the sun is bright and clear. But nature now shares his words as he cries out, My God, my God, why? 
Why hast thou abandoned me? Notice he said God. He did not say his father. Why should the father have abandoned him as the earth rejected him? Well, because he's on this work of redemption. That's it very simply. Now, many in my audience are fathers. Many a father has taken his young son to a dentist. And the boy had an infected tooth, and there was danger of his whole body becoming toxic. The boy dreaded going to that dentist. And when the dentist took the drill and began to give the boy pain, did the father ever seize the arm of the dentist and say, Do not do that. You're hurting my son. Or did he suffer it? In order that the toxic condition might be revealed and relieved. Now that's exactly what the Heavenly Father was doing. He was allowing the Son to suffer for us, that we might be reconciled again to him. Now, each particular word is a expiation, a reparation for some kind of sin. This word of our blessed Lord is a reparation for atheists and fallen away. Does God know anything about atheism? Does he know what it is to be without the Father? In order that he might go through all the agonies of the human heart, in order that there might be nothing in him or our mortality, which he had not suffered and redeemed, he now willingly takes on, first of all, the pains and pangs of all forms of atheism. But notice he uses the word God. As he is atoning for atheists, there's still the undercurrent of God. Here there's the assumption that that is true even of the atheists. Scripture tells us of three kinds of atheists. First of all, what might be called the gastric atheists, whose God is their belly. That is to say, they who live only for bodily and carnal pleasures. They are atheists because they're flesh extinguishes the spirit, and their lives are so foul that no light ever comes through the window of their soul. Then there is another type of atheist called the heart atheist. The psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. That is to say, he does not wish a God. Do you think that a bank robber when he's most intent in opening the safe, ever looks for a policeman? And those who do not wish there was a God because they would have to change their lives are not looking for God. And the third type of atheists are those who are antichrists. They believe that they believe to hate I can remember some years ago, I used to read Mass every Sunday in a church in London, and as I came out from the rectory, there was a girl standing before the communion rail addressing the congregation, and she said, I'm an atheist. I go out to Hyde Park every night and talk against God. There's too much evil in the world. That is why there is no God, and so forth. And when I came up to her, I, 
I said to her, I was very happy to hear you addressing the congregation and telling them that you believe in God. Well, she said, you silly fool, I don't. Well, I said, I understood you to say just the contrary. I said, do you think we'd ever have such thing in our history of a man in America as prohibition unless there was something to prohibit? Do you think we'd ever have anti-cigarette laws unless there were cigarettes? How can you be an atheist unless there's something to atheate? She said, I hate you. Oh, I said, now you've given the answer. That's the answer. You hate me. Our blessed Lord now had to feel all of that loneliness. Nietzsche, the one who wrote Antichrist and went mad playing the piano, shouting against Christ, wrote to his sister saying, Do not think that we atheists do not suffer. We are in great agony because you can endure anyhow if you know a why, and we do not know a why. So for all the atheists in the world, yes, for Karl Marx, for Brezhnev, Albania, Russia, for our sophomores who just heard of Darwin last week, the good Lord had to suffer for them and feel all of that rejection. For they are not just so much denying God as they are dismissing God. So our Lord now feels dismissed. Then he suffered for all the fallen aways. Those who have had the faith and lost it. Lost it probably through pride. Lost it more through the commandments, breaking the commandments, than through a denial of the creed. Their lights have gone out, and they have an entirely different suffering than the atheists. The fallen away, those who have had the faith and lost it, have a deep sense of disorder. There's glass in the stomach. Things are not right. They would like to have them right. But while they are lonely and distressed and frustrated, the Lord is suffering for them. And because of this word, we never give up hope for the atheists, the agnostics, the skeptics, and the fallen aways. The hound of heaven is ever on the march. Stirring the soul, causing a discontent. No matter how much we try to lock God out, we cannot. Would it not be a great marvel of divine providence if as a prolongation of this word from our, of our Lord from the cross that we would someday witness the conversion of Russia? Dostoyevsky, the great novelist of the last century, said that Russia would one day become infected with devils. And then he asked for the Gospel of Luke. And he reads the story of the young man who had the devil, and our Lord cast the devil out of the young man and drove them into the swine, and swine plunged into the sea. And Dostoevsky said, and that's my Russia, full of devils. One day the devils will be driven out of Russia, and they will push back and back and back into the sea. And there, there they will be drowned. Russia will sit at the feet of Christ and learn his gospel. Not very long ago in, in Russia, there was a play called Christ in the Morning Coat. On the stage, 
was a simulated altar with drunken priests and drunken nuns about, the altar filled with vodka bottles. And this actor, whose name was Rostovich, came out to ridicule the Beatitudes. And he began reading, Blessed are the poor, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. And he read on and on the Gospel of Matthew. And at the end he said, I believe. At the end of the show, they never played it again. And one knows not what has actually happened to him. There are holes in the head of each and every one of us. And God's grace can get inside. Some are living in a kind of a hell, but heaven isn't far away. As hell is not very far away from heaven. Just imagine, for example, a perfect day in the springtime. Birds are singing. The lilt of the river nearby. Mountains are seen in the distance. All nature seems reflecting the divine power of the Creator. And in all of this peace, one man goes to a river, to that river where there are fish, contented because they're wet. And he takes one fish out of that water and holds it up. Where is that fish at that moment? That fish is in hell. See how close he is to heaven? Everywhere else is heaven. But he's in hell because he was made to be wet. And as that fish was made to be wet, we were meant to be with God then you'll be in heaven. God love you. Thank you, Your Excellency, for that reflection on did Christ think of atheists? And I think we're all just applauding him. Just uh, You hear these teachings and you just get excited to have the truth proclaimed once again. And so I'm glad you're enjoying this. Uh, you're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith. And so let us just continue on this, um, this Monday evening uh, series of talks that we've been doing now for five weeks here on CKWR. And so I want to thank also the listeners who have emailed me. Uh, again, it's nice to receive mail, uh, even though digitally. Uh, and my email address is bishopfultonjsheen at yahoo.ca. So bishopfultonjsheen at yahoo.ca. And so now uh, His Excellency will lead us in his small talk on loving. Our blessed Lord is the Word of God, who is the creator of the universe. From his fingertips tumble planets and worlds. All the rivers and fountains and springs of life came from the magic of his creative hand. Then when he came to this earth, he assisted one day at the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was a Jewish feast that lasted for about eight days. And on the final day, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam and gather some water from the pool, bring it up to the temple, and pour it out in full view of all the people as a reminder of the blessings of God. And our blessed Lord broke into the liturgy and said above the trickling of all the waters, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. On another occasion, 
Tired and weary at noon, he sat down at Jacob's well. A woman from the nearby village of Samaria came to draw water at noon, which was an unusual time, because the other women would not let her come at that hour. At the morning or evening hour, when they visited the well, and our Lord asked her for a drink and told her that if she continued to drink of these waters that she would thirst again. He told her to drink of the water that he would give and she would never thirst. This is one side of our blessed Lord's eternal life and earthly life. Now we come to the cross. It is only natural after hours of crucifixion, bloodletting, scourgings of the night before, and forty different kinds of fevers, that the body should be almost in the kind of a hellish torment. So there welled up from him who created all the waters of the earth the shortest of all the seven words, I thirst. When he was nailed to the cross, the executioners offered him a drink, but it was an anodyne, and he refused to take anything that would dull pain. Now what they offer him is probably some of their sour vinegar wine. And one of the soldiers reached some hyssop on a javelin and reached it to his mouth. This cry of our blessed Lord had a double meaning. First of all, it was obviously physical thirst, because that was one of the most natural effects of the crucifixion. The other effect was spiritual. What did the physical thirst here represent and symbolize and atone for? I believe that it atoned for all kinds of excesses. We do not have statues to alien gods in our culture. Once the true God came to this earth, there was no more need of making images of God, for the true image of God walked the earth. No other planet saw his earth visiting feet, but our own. But though we have no formal statues of gold and silver. We do have gods that we worship. And the three gods that are worshipped by our modern culture are Bacchus, Venus, and Mammon. First of all, Bacchus. Bacchus, the god of wine, the god of marijuana, the god of heroin, the god of drugs. All those things from God's creation that wreck and destroy in some way that which makes man the image of God, reasonable creature. It is a very curious thing that in the we these days when we mouth freedom, we are so anxious to destroy that which makes us free. The second God that we worship it's Venus. Venus, for all eroticism, loss, excesses of gluttony, and so forth. Where there was one organ isolated from the human body and made the object of worship.
And the third god that we worship is Mammon. Mammon is the most subtle of all because there's a kind of an infinity about it. One can never have enough. It is also a kind of economic immortality. See what I have. See how well prepared I am. My barns are filled. Each of these create a thirst. Not one of these gods ever satisfies. I thirst for marijuana, I want more. I thirst for alcohol, I want more. I thirst for money, I want more. If there was ever to be reparation in the heart of man for the excesses of the worship of these three gods, it had to be performed now on the cross. As our blessed Lord suffers a physical thirst, To atone for those who drink and are never satisfied, who eat and are never filled, who lust and who never love. This was a very torturous kind of moment for our Lord. It was almost a kind of hell. Because those who rely upon these gods and indulge in the fractions but never get the whole undergo a kind of a hell. The alcoholic for his drink, for example. The lustful person for the pleasure. They're never satisfied. This creates an interior hell. That is what hell is, a thirst. That is the way it is described in the scriptures. When, for example, the rich man was in hell, he spoke to Father Abraham and asked that just a drop of water be put on his tongue to relieve his thirst. Thirst is hell. It is interesting what has happened to hell in our modern world. First of all, we used to believe it as the good Lord taught it, that there is a heaven for those who do good, a hell for those who do evil. And then there is the earth, which is the place of probation. We finally denied heaven hell and earth, all for various reasons. We said that it smacked of a universe that was not very scientific. But when we denied hell, it went somewhere else. Where did it go? It went on the inside of human hearts. And human hell, with all of its psychic madness, began to take over. We had to be relieved from these burning flames. That conscience that had a thousand several tongues, and each tongue brings in a different tale, and every tale condemns me as a villain. I wonder, Macbeth asked about his wife, Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raise out the rooted tablets of the brain, and by some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff that weighs upon the heart. So that's why we had to seek all kinds of psychic relief the deadening of consciousness, because hell moved inside 
And finally, we couldn't take that hell. So what have we done with it in the last 10 or 15 years? We've made it into nuclear bombs. And the movies become the interpreters. So that catastrophes, judgments, towering infernos, wrecks, disasters, apocalyptic events, all of these terrible endings seize upon the mind to make it forget that brood of nocturnal serpents. They will not be still. That was the hell that our blessed Lord endured in this thirst. The hell for those who worship the three gods. He atoned for them, they will but invoke his mercy. And then, a spiritual thirst. And that is probably the real meaning of the word. Because we read in one of the Psalms, I thirst for the living God. When will I appear before him? So our Lord is now thirsting for return to his Father. The night before the Last Supper, he prayed to his Father and asked for the glory that was his before the foundations of the world were laid. told his disciples he was going to prepare a place for them. Now he has this thirst to return again to his Father. And applying that spiritual thirst of our Lord to ourselves, what is it that we have if we love the Lord? We have a thirst for holiness. We want to be saints. We want to be happy. Be at peace on the inside. To be one with the Father. And what is sanctity? Sanctity is is Christ living in me so that his mind possesses my, my mind and I'm governed by his truth. That's sanctity. So that he's in my will and all things that are pleasing to him that I do. He's in my body so that my body becomes a tabernacle. And then sanctity is not only Christ in me it's making Christ known to others. It's being lovable. Making Christ lovable. When they see us, others see us, they see Christ. As Peter and John, when they were in the Sanhedrin after the resurrection of our blessed Lord, Caiaphas and those who had condemned our Lord said, well, they've evidently been with Jesus. That's what a saint is. You say of him, well, he's been with Christ. That's happiness. And we all want it. The, the tragedy of life is not what we suffer. The tragedy of life is what we miss. The great and tremendous joy of being at peace. And what our Lord will then was that we be his. So that we are to do what some of the crusaders did at the time of the of Robert Bruce. He was taken ill and was unable to go on the crusades. And he asked his friend Lord Douglas, when he died, to, when Bruce died, to cut out his heart and take it with him to the Holy Land. And when Douglas went on the pilgrimage and on the war with the Saracens in the Holy Land... He met the enemy outside the walls of Jerusalem and he was losing the day and he turned to his soldiers and holding up the heart of Bruce, he said to his soldiers, 
is where the heart of Bruce was wont to go. There go ye! And he threw the heart of Bruce into the enemy, and so anxious to capture it, they went in and won the day. Well, that's what we're supposed to do. We hadn't lost fire. Our fires have gone out. Fire has two qualities, light and heat. We have the light, but the enemy has the heat. No fire. No love. So take Christ. Love him so much, you go in to win the day. Our thanks to the good bishop for leading us in those great teachings this evening. And so ask you to spread the word to your friends and family of uh, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen here on FM 98.5 CKWR. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. Good evening and God bless. <laughs>